Have you ever looked in the mirror and internally started going down that route of berating yourself and making yourself feel bad about what you see, or maybe you step on a scale, or maybe it's even that you've tried diet after diet after diet, and you might see some results at first, but then you quickly go back to you know your original weight or even higher, and you just can't seem to break the cycle, which is this vicious cycle over and over of not getting the results that you want and also getting stuck in that shame and the the mindset drama that comes with not achieving your goals and not feeling at your best, honestly, energetically and physically. If you have, you are in good company because there are a lot of people, including myself, that we're struggling all with our own sense of self and body, and it's so, so common in the world today. Luckily for us, we have an incredible guest today, and it was such a pleasure to be able to interview her, Dr. Trina Dora. She is incredible. She's a binge eating coach, and she actually went through this process for herself. She ended up going to treatment and going through the process of healing her relationship with food, with herself, and all the things in between in order to get to a place where she can have a healthier way of living, a healthier relationship with her food, a way to be able to understand her emotions, understand the things that were triggering her. And she really takes us through the process of how we can do that for ourselves. And so I hope you'll join in, especially if you've ever gone through this process for yourself, like the yo-yo dieting and things like that, or trying different things, hoping you're going to find the magic bullet. Because what Trina shares is so valuable, so needed in the world today, where we are constantly looking at magazines and photoshopped images and things like that. So I hope you'll join us, take a listen in and have an amazing day. Welcome to the Deliciously Alive podcast, where we explore what's possible when we allow ourselves the full human experience. My name is Sarah Campbell, and I'm your host. Each week, my guests and I will be sharing real and actionable insights on how to tap into your desires, feel truly alive, adventurous, and inspired to take action. I believe to my core that a vibrant, radiant, delicious life is possible for you. So pull up a comfy seat or join me on your favorite walk and we'll take this wild, messy, brilliant journey to living a life that lights us up together. Hello and welcome. Welcome. I am so excited to be here with you today. I have an amazing guest joining me today. We've got Dr. Trina Dora, who is joining us, and she's a practicing physician, a binge eating coach, and a former binge eater. She knows what it's like to struggle with food and feel like you can't fix it on your own. And she knows what it's like to see your weight steadily increase and still not be able to stop overeating. And she also knows what it's like to try and eventually fail every diet you start. When she says that she can help you stop excessive overeating, she knows she can because Trina used the same evidence-based principles to heal herself. She went from being someone who compulsively overeats every single day to someone who no longer does. She's also used these principles with her clients to help them stop overeating too. Excessive overeating isn't about the food. It's a way to decrease stress and emotional pain. 
And that's why it's so common for physicians who Trina primarily serves to overeat as a way to cope with life in medicine. But you can stop and she can help you get there. Trina, thank you so much for being here and gracing us with your presence. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. This is such an interesting topic because I think it's something that is pretty widespread, at least in North American culture. And this is really a personal mission for you because, like we just said, this is something that you've actually experienced. So you have real-time experience going through this process for yourself. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and where you started to where, how you got to where you are now? Yeah, no. So I really started noticing that there was a problem when the pandemic happened. And so, as you said, I'm a physician and I'm the type of physician who exclusively works in the hospital. So when the pandemic first started, a lot of physicians moved home and then they were doing telemedicine, but I was still having to go into the hospital. And it is hard to remember now how scary it was at the beginning because we just didn't know what we were dealing with. There were no vaccines. And my colleagues and I used to sit around in the office talking about dying. We were like, we wonder if we're going to die because we had all these patients who had COVID and who were dying. Mm -hmm. And it was very stressful. So there was the stress of that plus the stress of kids being out of school, like we had pulled them out. And I turned to food, which was the thing that I had kind of always done, but the pandemic really heightened it. And I found that I got to a point where I felt like I couldn't stop. Like I couldn't stop eating because whenever I ate, it helped in that moment with the pain and it helped in that moment with the stress. The kids would be running around screaming, yelling in the background. I would go in my room, shut the door and just eat a bunch of cookies. And I would feel better in that moment, but it just got to the point where it was out of hand. And even when I tried to stop, I couldn't. And that's when I really realized, okay, something is going on because I would tell myself, I'm not going to do this tomorrow. And then tomorrow I'd be back in the exact same situation. And so day after day, I was trying to stop and I couldn't. And so then that's whenever I said, I think I might have a problem. Like this might be more than just the occasional overeating that we all engage in. I think this is a problem where I might actually need to get some extra help. Mm. So how did that end up? So you got to that point of recognition about yourself and that's totally relatable too. It's so funny for, I never would have said I was an emotional eater. And then there are certain instances in my life and I realized the same thing. I'm like, whoa, what's happening here? It's almost like I didn't realize it was a thing until retrospect. But for you, you recognized you were experiencing this. What happened from that moment to now where you're actually serving others who are going through that experience? Right. And one of the ways that I would say I recognized it, because you're right, I don't think most people just wake up and say, oh, I think I am a binge eater and I need to go get help. But I was trying diets. Mm. Like I kept trying diet after diet. And I couldn't figure out why none of them were working anymore because I'm someone who had dieted many times in the past. And I could always stick to it, lose weight. At some point I would gain it back. But for the most part, I was successful. But then it got to the point where even that wasn't working. So the one thing I knew to do, which was to diet, wasn't working. I couldn't even stick to a diet for one day anymore. And then I started saying something is going on. So it was actually my inability to diet that made me think, okay, what's going Mm. on here? Now, in retrospect, I realized that was a lot of the problem because the restriction that comes with dieting and the limitations lead to binging. 
But then I decided to go get help. And prior to going into treatment, I was actually a divorce coach. And so I was coaching women on divorce. But then whenever I got out of treatment, I realized that there's only a small percent of people that are officially going to have an eating disorder because there are actual medical criteria that you have to meet to have an eating disorder. And that's a small percentage of people. But I said, you know what? I have so many friends and myself as well who are in this culture of just disordered eating where disordered eating or dieting or not eating enough to nourish your body, speaking negatively about our bodies, speaking negatively about other people's bodies, that is just commonplace. And so I knew that a lot of the concepts that I learned in treatment could still be applicable to other people and that they could help other people, even if they never officially had an eating disorder, it could still help them in their journey. And so that's whenever I decided to change from coaching on divorce to coaching on binge eating, overeating, emotional eating. I kind of call it a lot of different names just because I know that different people resonate with different names. Mm -hmm. And so I want people to know, I see them, I hear them, I understand where they're coming from. Mm. I think there's something a little bit more powerful. There's something really powerful about being a business owner and seeing a gap and saying, okay, I want to fill that gap. There's a little bit more of an edge when somebody comes at it from a place of experience and understanding and deep awareness of what that person is going through. So it's so cool that you took your existing skills as a coach and just shifted that approach over to the people that you knew so well because you knew them on an intimate level because you knew you and you knew what you were going through. So that's really incredible. There is definitely a component of being willing to be vulnerable. And I think I had sort of gotten to that point already with the divorce coaching because I was drawing on my own previous experience, but that had been several years ago. And so I was already remarried and I was in a different place. This was a little bit fresher. Like I had just kind of gone through this, but I just felt like what I learned was so valuable. I didn't want to wait. I wanted to get the word out there and help in whatever way I could. We always say in coaching, you don't have to know everything. You just have to be ahead of your client, like by a step or two. Mm. And I said, I know something. I know something that I can get out there and start talking about. And I know I can help people even with what I know now. And so that's really what started it. And then it's grown from there. I love that. I love that. What a great way to give back. So you talk about binge eating as a way to decrease stress and emotional pain. What's the science and the mindset, I guess, behind that response to stress? And we kind of touched on it a minute ago, but do we unconsciously do this or what's the, like, is it dopamine, endorphin? Like what is, what's going on there? Yeah. So one of the things that I remember learning in treatment that really helped so much is something called the binge restrict cycle. And so basically it starts, we'll start with the binge. And so you binge, and then after you binge, there's a lot of emotions like shame, guilt, disappointment that go along with the binge. And it's emotional pain, right? Negative emotions. And so when you're in this binge restrict cycle, you deal with it by saying, okay, tomorrow I'll be better. Tomorrow I'll go back on my diet. Tomorrow I'll make a change. And so it's like you're atoning for the binge. And so you end up going back on another diet or some other meal plan, maybe writing everything out, swearing to yourself that you're going to just stick to eating salads all day the next day. And so Mm -hmm. you initially do feel better. 
and maybe you lose some weight and you feel like you're back in control essentially because when you're having the binge you feel out of control then you decide to restrict again or limit things again you feel very much in control but at some point that doesn't work anymore like you're getting by on willpower but those urges and cravings for all the things that you're cutting out you're not allowing yourself to have those are growing and then there's usually some sort of trigger that causes people to then binge. For me, that trigger was often stress or anxiety. Different people can certainly have different things that lead them down that pathway. And in treatment, that was one of the things that we would examine is what led to us engaging in our behavior. But for me, it frequently is some sort of negative emotion. And that would trigger it, that would lead into the binge. And then the cycle would start again, where I'd binge, feel better initially, then feel worse, then try to make up for it by restricting. That would work for a little while, then it wouldn't work, and I'd binge, and I'd be back in that cycle again and again and again. Mm. It's like a vicious cycle that keeps repeating right. itself. That makes 100% sense. So whenever you do study binge eating, you'll see that restriction is at the root hmm. of it. And so I've... I went through treatment, but then since that time, because I've been out a couple of years now, I've had a lot of time to educate myself, study more, learn more, and really learn what, like you said, kind of the science says or what the treatment strategies are for helping people yeah. deal with this. So if restriction could be a trigger, if we put ourselves in that scarcity if we're doing this sometimes unconsciously, like I said earlier, when I was experiencing, I realized after I'm like, whoa, oh, okay. Like I had done it for a while before I realized, how do we get to the root? Because you kind of talked about it as part of the experience you went through with treatment. How do we get to the root of what's triggering us? Like mm -hmm. identifying it, healing it, or so we can start that healing journey. Right. One of the strategies or techniques that we did in treatment that I thought was really helpful, it was called behavior chains. But the basic idea was you engage in the behavior and then you go back and analyze it. So you would have, in this instance, a binge, but then you go back and you figure out, okay, what was going on in my life at the time? What things were happening that maybe made me more vulnerable to binging. So maybe it was a day that you were operating off of four hours right. of sleep and you already know whenever you're very sleep deprived, you're more sensitive to things. So that's one of your vulnerability factors. And so then you're saying, okay, what happened? You're writing out the steps of what happened that led up to that binge. What were the thoughts that you were thinking? What were your feelings that you were feeling? And literally you're kind of going step by step to the point of the binge. And then you are examining, okay, where could I have intervened? How could I have behaved differently in this moment or this moment or this moment? That was part of it. I think also for me knowing that negative emotions and in particular anxiety and stress led me to overeat, getting in touch with my body and what that felt like in my body. So becoming more in tune to what does anxiety feel like? Where do I feel it? Just, you know, be able to describe it. Like I describe it as this tight ball in the pit mm. of my stomach. And then knowing that when I'm feeling that coming on, stopping, taking a pause and say, okay, what's going on here? Oh yeah, that's anxiety. I'm used to that feeling. Anxiety usually leads me to eat. And so what are some other 
things that I can do to address anxiety. Maybe for some people that involves therapy or medication, or maybe for some people it's meditating or exercising or reading or stepping away from the situation. Whatever it is, whenever I was in treatment, we kind of worked on creating those plans, learning some techniques. Like we did talk a lot about mindfulness and meditation whenever I was in treatment, but learning techniques to bring our emotions down so that when we hit that trigger, we could behave differently. But a lot of it was binge after binge, having to analyze it, go back through it so that we mm. can learn and gather a new date. That is so interesting. I think as a, this is what I've noticed with my son anyways. He was part of a pilot project in his daycare about around emotional intelligence and how kids were going into kindergarten and not emotionally developed and I think for our generation, like the generations before my son, who's seven right now, it wasn't as much of a focus. And I think we've got a lot of adults out there working on our emotional intelligence and how to tune into our bodies. And so hopefully that generation benefits from that work that we're recognizing is so, so needed. But it's so interesting. We talk a lot. One of the biggest themes of this podcast, how it ties into everything really is, is our thoughts and how we have the power to change our results because our thoughts create our feelings, our feelings create our actions and our actions create our results. It's that trickle down effect. It's not necessarily our circumstances. So when you were doing this analytic kind of data-driven approach or this analytic approach, I guess, was there thought reframing that you had to intentionally choose. So you would say, okay, I'm feeling anxious. Why am I feeling anxious? This is, you know, a circumstance I'm dealing with and this is what I'm thinking about it and it's creating this trickle down effect. Did you kind of start reframing things at the thought so that you could affect that trickle down effect? Yes. Yeah, so the technique you're talking about is based in cognitive behavioral therapy. And so whenever I was in treatment, a lot of the treatment for binge eating disorder, eating disorders in general, when you look at the literature, is cognitive behavioral therapy. So yes, there was a lot of work on reframing our thoughts, examining our thoughts and reframing our thoughts. So I also continued to work with a life coach while I mm -hmm. was in treatment. And the life coaching school that I went to, that's the format that we follow. And so the life coaches I was working with, same thing. So all of the other things in my life that I previously would have used food to cope with, maybe they weren't things that were serious enough to take to a therapy session, but maybe it was a disagreement with a coworker or something my husband said that annoyed me. Still things that I might've responded mm. by eating. Those were things I would take to my coaching sessions. And we would work a lot on thoughts and reframing my thoughts. And so that was certainly a huge part of treatment. There were some other therapeutic modalities that we used that were helpful as well. But yes, the thought reframing was a mm. big part of it. And so what are the other ones that were, that you found were helpful? One, there's another therapeutic modality called ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. And one of the things about ACT, and they they kind of drilled this into us. But one of the things about ACT is it focuses a lot on values and taking committed action in line with your values. So maybe you don't really feel like doing it or want to do it. Maybe it's not easy, but this is your value. And so you are doing it 
because you want to live according to your values. So I found that to be really helpful when maybe a thought reframe didn't work or I just couldn't get to a point where I really believed differently or wanted to behave differently. But I could easily say my value, one of the reasons I'm trying to get better, one of the reasons I'm trying to deal with this issue is for my family or for my kids, because I don't want my kids to grow up with a mom who has a lot of issues with disordered eating. And so I could still take the action, do the things that they were asking me to do and and move closer to that value. And so I found that framework to be incredibly helpful. And I still, to this day, spend a lot of time focused on values work. Even uh, at work, I do coaching for colleagues at work on burnout. We talk to them about values Mm -hmm. work. So learning about it actually has been very, very helpful. That is really great. It's funny. I actually struggled through, you know, just my life of sometimes feeling motivated or, and I think it's kind of the same thing where you're like, I just don't feel like it today. I want to binge eat. I want to just sit here and eat this whole bag of chips. And one of the biggest light bulb moments of my mindset journey, I guess, if you will, was recognizing that the shift had to be from motivation and passion or excitement about doing something to commitment and dedication. And I think that's kind of why some of the things in my life, like even this podcast exists, because, you know, there's days where you just don't want to do the things you set out to do, like eating according to however you choose to to eat. But it's that tie in with your values that allows you to kind of take a step and act at a higher level than you're currently feeling right now. And it's it's really, I mean, it makes sense. We're very driven by our why and our values and stuff. So that makes a whole lot of sense to me. And you mentioned before, I I mean, there's a lot of shame in this, especially, and that might even, I don't know if that would be heightened when you're going through this process because you're so aware. Did you find that was? Oh yeah, there was so much shame. And for me in particular, being a physician, I felt like there was a lot of shame. And so I think it would apply to any high achieving person who is used to being able to get what they want through hard work and being able to solve problems in their life. And then with this, when you're struggling with your eating and you again, feel out of control, like you can't stop, you don't know what to do. You're like, I've never been in this situation before, before I just studied harder or I hired a tutor or whatever. I looked it up on the internet and I figured it out. And then with this, it was just like, I can't figure this out. And so it felt incredibly shameful. And even to the point where when I first went to get treatment, I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. Even my own family, I kind of told them a version of what it was, but not even the full story. I didn't tell my boss. I just told him I had a medical emergency. I had to take time off of work. My coworkers were texting me. Are you okay? I I wouldn't tell anyone because I was so embarrassed. But then you realize it's more than just It was a journey. So whenever I was in treatment, it was interesting. There were actually a couple of people I met younger than myself. So we had the adult treatment and then we had the Mm -hmm. teen treatment. And teens are very different, right? Like they grow up in social media. So there were teens that were like, oh, I share with all of my Instagram followers about my journey here. (laughs) And I'm like, you do what? I'm like, you're you're talking about this? And so that was something I really admired about the teens is I was like, wow, they're not ashamed. They are out there talking about this. And 
I said, well, one day I want to be like that. I couldn't imagine it at the time, but I knew that I did want to get to the point where I wasn't embarrassed, just like I wasn't embarrassed anymore to talk about divorce. And because of that, I was able to help people. I knew I wanted to get to the point, but at first I couldn't even imagine it. Now I'm there. I talk to anybody about it. And so I'm always wanting to share my story. And I've had a lot of people along the way thank me for sharing Mm -hmm. my story because it's helped them. Yeah. Sometimes the silence you break allows others to be able to feel like that lift that shame for themselves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've had people I don't know, just random people will DM me and say, I'm a physician. I read your article that you wrote about this or heard you on a podcast. And I think I also have a problem. I've never told anybody, but they're telling me this random person because they heard me and felt like I understood them. That's a powerful connection for sure. So when it comes to life, there are certain common situations that we encounter. We talk about stress and anxiety. Those are really big triggers for binge eating. And I think there are some other common situations that we might come across. Have you found any common scenarios that your clients experience that they're kind of, they go down that rabbit hole faster than others, maybe social situations or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, it it definitely, a lot of it is driven by emotions. And usually the emotions are negative emotions. So for, it might not be anxiety, like I felt or depression, but a lot of times when people are not wanting to feel a particular emotion, they'll turn to food. But then there is also that component of restriction. Whenever we tell ourselves something's bad or we're not Mm. allowed to have it, then that does become the thing that we want. And there's so much mental energy spent trying to fight against it. And so I definitely think those seem to be the two kind of most common things people restricting in various ways. They don't might not even realize that's what they're doing, but through diets or even just through the thoughts they tell themselves about food being bad or food being good and bad, healthy, unhealthy, the thoughts that they tell themselves when they eat one of the bad foods and then how they beat themselves up about it. And so those seem to be the kind of common factors that I found in terms of the people I work with. Now, I will say, if you're working with a therapist, psychiatrist, they're going to delve a lot deeper. They're going to delve into a lot of past trauma and things like that. But that's not the role of the coach, a life coach. And so I deal with the here and now, and then let's move you forward. What's your thoughts on, because this has been a big conversation, and I think there's got to be a middle ground, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are with, you know, self-love, loving yourself as you are appreciating your body, how you're built, how you're made, whatever. And then also honoring your body as the, you know, some people say the meat suit that allows us to live here on the planet and do good work and whatever we choose to do. Is it one or the other? Is there some kind of tie-in that we need to work both the self-love and the aspiration to do better with when it comes to this topic? Yeah. So I know that initially my goal was self-love and I remember talking to my therapist about it and she was saying, working on your body image and getting to the point where you really love how you look, it's probably going to be the hardest work you do 
it may take you many years and you might not ever actually even get there. And so I've accepted that. And I see where she's coming from because again, about two years into this journey, I have pretty much maybe only made it to body neutrality. And I'll explain what that is. But I started from a place of right. like self-hate. Like I hated pretty much every single thing right. about my body. I liked everything else. Like I liked who I was, you know, as a person and as a friend and those types of things as a physician. But if you asked me, name something about your body that you like, the only two things I liked were my nose mm. and my lips. And I could not name a single other thing on my body. And I was repulsed by it, essentially. And so it's been very slow work just to get to this point of body neutrality where I can just say, right, I don't bash myself anymore. So I have a mirror by my bed. And every morning when I wake up, I used to look in the mirror and then just say all right. the awful things because I thought, oh, if I just say enough horrible things to myself, maybe mm. I'll finally get it in gear yeah. and lose weight. But yeah. that doesn't work, right? If, if we could be mean to ourselves and lose weight, <laughs> then things would be very different. Yeah. That does not work. And so now I look in the mirror and I don't love what I see, but I don't allow myself to go down the path of saying all the negative things. And then a lot of times now I'll just say, you know, these are my legs. They are what they are, but these legs allow me right. to do my job. They allow me to go spend time with my kids and play with my kids and do other things that are important to me. Or yes, this is my body. I don't love how it looks, but this is also the same body that's allowed me to be here today, you know, helping other people and impacting other people by telling my story. So I'm at the point right now of body neutrality, maybe in a few more years, it might get to where I'm just like really feeling a lot of self-love and body positivity. So I feel self-love about myself for everything else in my life. Not as much for my body. That is, mm. I will not lie. That is a hard, hard journey. But I, I thank you for your honesty though, because I think that it's so easy to, uh, to hear somebody say something and be like, I can't even conceptualize. Like the, my mind cannot go that far yet like it's just right. not and so automatically they're like shut down can't do it too far too much breaks on not listening anymore tuned out and it's right with some things especially things as impactful to our everyday lives as this it kind of has to be a ladder approach where you're like okay can i like get here can i get here and you can't even see the top of the ladder but you just focus on getting to the next step. And I feel like it's kind of like that where you're at the middle ground, or, you know, you've gotten from here, you're here. And, but now maybe this is a possibility, whereas down here, it would have been like too far out of your, do you think that's the case? Right. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can't go from, I hate how I look and just say, yeah. oh, but I love how I look. Like you can't do false. It's on inauthentic to yourself. Yeah, exactly. You're you yeah. don't believe it. Like you you simply don't believe it and it doesn't. Yeah, work. you just think you're trying to brainwash yourself and it just is like, okay, well, right. You just stop, it doesn't work. So that makes a lot of right. sense. Is there a piece of self-love that you had to engage with yourself in maybe less about your body, more about your values, your mind, whatever it is in order to get to that body neutrality. Like there's a, you had to love yourself enough to take steps mm -hmm. to heal. 
I guess. I definitely feel like whenever I think about it, it makes me very sad how much time I spent hating myself, how much time I spent, not just hating myself, but how much time I spent thinking about my weight and my body and diets and all of the exhaustion from all the mental chatter. And so, you know, it makes me think like, what could I have created in my life had I not devoted all of that time? And so I think once I really started thinking about that, and I probably became a lot more introspective about that through coaching once I became Mm -hmm. a coach and really thinking about creating, you know, manifesting our best life and just realizing, wow, so much wasted opportunity, but you can't go back and change the past. But now whenever I think about the future, I'm like, I definitely know I don't want my brain space spent always worrying about yeah. my body. It's such an energetic drain, no matter what it is, like anything. Exactly. That and it's so funny what you said. You nailed it. I was just having a conversation about this the other day about um, kind of motivating ourselves from a place of self-hate or berating ourselves. I mean, looking in the mirror, I don't like what I see. So push harder, go to the gym again, don't eat the cookie, whatever. And, but I was kind of using this example of it's like a slave versus an artist and they're creating the same building. But if you're a slave, like you're kind of berating yourself and you're like, work harder, go farther. You're going to burn out. You're never going to want to do it again. You build a building, you're never going to want to build another building. Whereas from an artist's approach, you're creating something, you're creating a body you've wanted, you're creating a mindset you've wanted or whatever. And so the it's like that pull versus the push. It's such the berating is kind of a good short term motivator, like five more minutes on the treadmill, whatever. But right, long term, right. you can't get to where you want to go if you're just hating on yourself the whole time. It just isn't. It doesn't work. It doesn't exactly. Or even in your treadmill example, yes, you can push yourself and yell at yourself to do the workout, but in the long term, how many years can you really do that? Right. It's not long-term motivator. I used to yeah. do that to myself, but I don't need more. Like it's not sustainable long-term. Whereas I feel like coming from the space of more body neutrality intuitive eating, letting go of all of these strict rules around food, that is sustainable long-term. Yeah. So let's dig into that because that was my next question is, what do we do now? Like we recognize whether we need to go into treatment or not, and we just know we've recognized this about ourselves, and we realize, okay, there's a lot of emotional triggers that are happening. I know I need to work through this, potentially reframe my thoughts, tie into my values, what are the things that we can do? You mentioned just a second ago, intuitive eating and then like less around the risk scarcity. Yeah. Intuitive eating was one of the big strategies that I learned Mm. and I still follow and I'm getting certified as an intuitive eating counselor. And I just really love it because it shifts your relationship with food. So it no longer becomes about calories and it's not a diet anymore. And you're out of that diet mentality and you're really focused more on what feels good in your body, what sounds good, what tastes good. You're focused on enjoyment, but then you also are getting back in touch with your body, eating when you're hungry and learning to really figure out when are you hungry? When are you full? 
stopping, putting the food away because you know you can have more later. Mm -hmm. So it's a different way of approaching food. Very different than how I approached food before when I used to diet all the time. It's more of like an abundant mentality. Exactly. And of course, that's not the only strategy out there. It is one of my favorites, but that is one of the ones I love. I also love, there's a concept called health at every size that your viewers uh, may or may not have heard of. But one thing I really liked about health at every size is part of the health at every size movement is emphasizing that no matter where you are, you can still engage in health promoting behaviors. Mm. And that mentality was something that I learned through treatment and that health is broader than just your number on the scale. You know, health isn't just like what size you are, what size pants you are, which I think a lot of us think yeah. you must be yeah. this weight, this, you know, this size and that equals health. And that's all that health is. Whereas the health at every size movement talks a lot about how health is way more than what your body looks like. And no matter where you are, you can engage in health promoting behaviors. You can get more sleep. You can meditate. You can take care of yourself no matter where you are. And that was something I think that was also very helpful and freeing just to learn to think about health from a different perspective mm. and believe that I too could engage in health and be part of health. Even looking, you know, even as I look now, like I didn't have to change my body to be working on my health. And so that was another big philosophy that we learned in treatment. And that really shifted my thinking as well, because before I felt like I'm only, I can only say I'm doing something healthy if, if I lose this many pounds. Right Now I'm like, no matter what, I can go for a walk. No matter what, I can add more vegetables to my plate or, you know, no matter what I can sleep I, or I can get more sleep and I can go get a massage or whatever those things are. And it doesn't have to be about losing weight or changing my appearance or changing the way my body looks. Mm. So if you're using health as your North Star instead of this on the scale as a North Star. Yes. Then it also is how you define health. And so like I said, in right. the kind of world of eating disorders and disordered eating, health is defined, like I said, more broadly. It's not just what we are taught to think in diet culture, that health is strictly just what your weight is and your pant size. Right. I think too, I don't, this is at least my experience and I hopefully it's for others too, is that whenever I have done that, where I'm like engaging in broad range of health behaviors, like you said, health behaviors, I liked that. If I choose to go for a walk, I intuitively will want to fuel my body with something better than just sitting and eating like a bag of Cheetos or, <laughs> or whatever. It's like it creates this. I'm not saying it's like immediate or anything, but it creates the better you treat your body in all the different areas, the more sleep you get, the more you go out and get some fresh air, go for a walk. The trickle effect for me, at least, has been a better eating, a better relationship with food. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In that situation, when you're coming from a place of love, you're not getting a salad because you feel like you have to. You're right. not getting a salad because it's the lowest calorie option. You're getting a salad because in that moment, that's what you want. Yeah. And that's what tastes good to you. And so it is a very different mentality. 
Do you and think- you enjoy it. Like now I like salads. I hated them before <laughs> whenever they were. Totally. I did punishment yes but now I like them <laughs> it's funny how that can be you're like okay that's exactly it's punishment at one point in your life and then so do you get people that hear intuitive eating and they're like I like I don't trust myself to go there yet I can't just intuitive eat because I will I guess it has to be done in tandem you have to be working on your thoughts and your values in tandem with intuitive eating. Because if you did intuitive eating and you weren't working on the other pieces of you, you would just intuitively eat the things that you get triggered. Well, and yes, and intuitive eating is made of 10 principles. And so intuitive eating was a kind of a philosophy created by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch and their dietitians and 10 principles of intuitive eating. The first principle is to give up the diet mentality. Mm. And so... They're very clear that you cannot simultaneously still be trying to diet or turn this into a diet right. and get what you need to get out of intuitive eating. And so you would be concerned about, oh, I'm not going to be able to stop if you are still in that diet mentality of I might not be able to stop and then I might gain a pound mm. or you know I might gain some weight. But I don't weigh myself. I encourage people to work towards stepping away from the scale, especially if you are someone who harms them. Yeah. You compulsively check or like if you were someone who kind of exactly becomes sort of obsessed by the scale, stepping away from the scale can be very helpful. And the other thing to answer your question, I found that the more freedom I give myself around food. So the more freedom I give myself to eat cookies or ice cream or candy, it's not that I never eat it, but I don't have that intense Mm. desire to eat it all anymore because I've given myself the permission. So in intuitive eating, we allow ourselves to have whatever we want, but that does not mean that you're always eating ice cream. Whenever everything's available, then ice cream is no longer as sexy. Yeah. We kind of did this with my son unintentionally at first. And then we were like, oh, this is interesting. Let's like kind of test this. But um, so he's seven and we've never restricted his sugar intake. Sometimes we'll be like, hey, like it's close to bed. Let's choose another snack. But we've never... And it came up one time in a conversation with a friend about Halloween. And I don't know if this is right or wrong or whatever. Like, I think everybody has their own journey and their own choices. But there was a conversation with a friend that came up around Halloween candy. And he had gone out and gotten trick-or-treating. And we just were like, okay, put it all in a bucket. And we never said, like, you can only have two per day or whatever. And she had come over with her kids. And she was like, I could never – because the bowl was on the counter – he could easily take it, but he just chose not to. And he would say, oh, no, I'm going to get a sweet tooth. And this is at five years old. And he had already been able to, but I think it was that. It was that abundance. So there's candy there. There's going to be candy there. It's not running mm-hmm. out. I'm not going to have to, like, fight for it or gobble it all up when nobody's looking. I know it's there. I can get it when I want. And it made it less desirable or less attractive to him, I think. And I, that may not be with every kid. Oh, absolutely. That's that's him. But Right. But that philosophy is exactly correct. It's the idea that, like you said, it, you can have it whenever you want it and you don't have to eat it in secret. Mm-hmm. If you eat a piece of candy, nothing is has gone wrong. You're not bad. 
And you're right, you don't want it as much. And when you do eat it, you're actually enjoying it because you're not trying to eat it quickly. You're not eating it in secret. You're not telling yourself all the horrible thoughts. You're just enjoying it. And then you get that satisfaction. So you don't need as much. And so usually what we tell people, they talk about this in intuitive eating. This is what I learned as well. Maybe initially when you first give yourself unlimited permission, you might eat a little bit more. But after a while, you reach an equilibrium. So for me, it was macaroni and cheese. (laughs) I love macaroni and cheese. And (laughs) my sister makes amazing macaroni and cheese, but she only makes it Thanksgiving and Uh, Christmas. So Chick-fil-A started selling macaroni and cheese. I don't know. Do you have Chick-fil-A's where you live? I'm right at the border, though. Like, I have some American stuff, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they sell macaroni and cheese. And it tastes like home style. And... I always would tell myself it's bad. I felt so much guilt, shame, just so much mental drama, trying not to eat the mac and cheese. If I did stop and get it, just feeling awful. In the car before any before I go in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. So one of the kind of challenges that my team issued to me was allowing myself to have macaroni and cheese whenever I wanted it. And yes, initially I was like, <laughs> yes, let's go get some. But very quickly it wasn't as exciting yeah. anymore <laughs> like I I was just kind of like it's not special anymore like a- yesterday I don't really want anymore <laughs> so the fact that I could get it I didn't want it as much <laughs> and that's still the case to this day I think that's probably basic human psychology across right. the board for a lot of things that makes a ton of sense right well because I pass there's a chick-fil-a near me I pass it and every single time I would be fighting with myself down the street to not turn in and get mac and cheese. Yeah, you know it's coming up. Now oh I just drive past it. And every now and then I'll say, you know what? I really think I want some. And I'll go get it. All the other days, it's not an issue anymore. Oh my gosh. That alone, what a thing to celebrate. Like that's like breaking free of mental chains. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. It feels like so much freedom. <laughs> so much freedom. Yeah. Totally. Totally. That's like mental chains that you've broken. That's incredible. Exactly. So I know we're going to wrap up here and I want to make sure we talk about where people can find you and stuff. But if there was one thing, if somebody is listening in and they are struggling, they're on the yo-yo diet trend, they've been dieting forever, but they're staying same or even the weight's creeping up and they know they probably get triggered. They know, especially hearing this, they're like, oh yeah, I did like get in a fight with my husband and then eat a row of cookies or what they're seeing it now. What's one thing that they can do today or, you know, what's one step they can take toward a future that is better, that's healthier for them, that feels better Mm -hmm. now that you're on the other side. So I definitely want to encourage everyone to get help, whatever help looks like, whatever level of help you need realizing that yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, you might have shame around it, but do it anyway. Like you just have to commit to doing it anyway, even though it feels feels terrible. A lot of times we say, do it afraid. And so even though it feels yeah. terrible, I know the lady who started the life coach where I trained always talks about, uh, she has this saying where she says, discomfort is the currency of your dreams. And so that's very true, right? Like, uh, that sounds familiar to me. <laughs> It is a lot of discomfort to get help, but then you get to your dreams on the other side. And so that is what I would encourage people to do is get help. One thing you can also start doing immediately is stop 
the hateful messages you tell yourself, right? So when you wake up and look in the mirror, don't allow yourself to go down that path of naming everything on your body that you hate. Yeah. You can stop that right now. You don't have to love it, but you can stop that. That's just something very simple and easy that you could start today. Mm. Like I have legs, I'm standing. I could stand because I have legs. When we were in treatment, they actually cover all the mirrors. So you're not even allowed to look at yourself whenever you're in treatment. And it's probably a good practice. Like now you're through it to kind of, it's a little bit of a challenge. You look in the mirror and you may have to kind of be like, whoa, no, not doing that, not going there. But you're so vulnerable at that time. That makes sense. It's like, just take away the distractions so that you can really focus right. in on healing. Yeah. I mean, these, I use these skills. I always tell people I'm not talking about this skill as a hypothetical. Yeah. Like I use these skills every single day, every day. I'm still reminding myself nothing mm. good comes from me berating my body and practicing body neutrality and just reminding myself. I'm thankful that my body still moves and I can do these things I love. So yeah. I'm practicing these skills every single day. Oh, Trina, this has been so good. Where can everybody find you, follow oh, you, you, connect with you? Yeah, so the two main ways are my website, which is foodfreedommd.com. So foodfreedommd.com. And then my podcast, Diet Culture is BS. I love it. <laughs> so good. Okay, perfect. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes. And also the, what was the movement that you were talking about? The... We'll figure it out. It was earlier in the conversation, but we'll make sure that we put everything that you shared okay. in the show notes so that everyone can get. Okay. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> oh, health at every size. Is that what yes, you're talking about? Yes, that's what it was. Okay. Yes. yes. Thank you. Yeah, thank we you. talked about intuitive eating and we talked about health at every size. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, for spending your time with us and creating a safe space for people going through something that is a huge challenge, but also there's huge, there's tons of energy and love and self love on the other side. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Deliciously Alive podcast with me today. We hope it brought value to you and created a bit of inspiration and encouragement that will move you into action. For more, you can head on over to deliciouslyalive.com forward slash guide to get our free resource guide that will show you actionable ways to live an incredible life, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would love it too or leave a rating and review. It means the world to us and gives us feedback on what to do more of. That's all for this episode. So till next time, stay curious, be brave, and take inspired action toward that delicious life meant especially for you.